Hey guys, Pastor Jurgen here. I'm so glad you're tuning into one of our powerful messages that is guaranteed to absolutely elevate your life to another level. At Awaken, we only want to preach fresh, real, powerful to help you grow stronger in your walk with God, develop your faith so you can take more territory. I'm praying that God blesses you and enriches your soul as you listen to this amazing word from God. God bless you. Lift your hands high to heaven. Say these words. Say, Heavenly Father, today I open my heart to hear your word. One word from heaven can change everything. Today, Lord, speak. Your servant is listening. In Jesus' name, amen. Go ahead, give two or three people a high five. Tell them they are really, really ridiculously good looking. Amen. You guys can go and take a break. Thank you so much. Um, We're in the middle of a relationship series. How many people had a wonderful Valentine's? Oh, good. I love seeing that. I love seeing that. We we do something pretty interesting because I have two girls, believe it or not. I have my wife and my daughter. And so we we believe very big on uh, daddy-daughter dates because I feel like I've got to set the bar. After three sons... After three, I couldn't wait for them to get married, but if I was honest with you, I'm like, I'm not ready to, to lose my little princess. Like, I'm the apple of her eye. And, you know, there is a, a, a young man, and I wanted to not like him. I tried everything, but he's just so darn nice. And he treats her like a little princess. So, um, so we have this tradition. I always take Leanne out uh, the night before Valentine's Day. And this, this, this last week, um, Dr. Matt and Michaela are like, hey, are you guys going out? We're like, yeah, we're going out. Can we, can we piggyback on that? We've got a crazy week. And so, so we did a, a double date with the Hubbards. And so I had to take Leanne out for lunch the next day to make up for the, so that she still got her one-on-one time. But then that night I took, uh, took my Zoe and I call her my little smushki. And uh, we went to, her favorite is the melting pot. So we were downtown at the melting pot. And we had like the best daddy-daughter date. And she's 15. She's 16 this year in August. So, you know, she's like, Daddy, thank you so much. This was so much fun. And so I leaned forward and I said, well, baby, I said, I don't know how many of these I've got left. You know, because, you know, there's a, a little guy on on the wings who's quite interested in you. And I know you like him. And Pretty soon I'm going to be replaced. She goes, oh, no, no, Daddy, you'll always have Valentines. Just like, you know, you and Mom go out, goes, that's what I'll do, but you'll have, you'll always be my Valentine. So, so it kind of wrecked me. I wasn't crying. You were crying. I wasn't crying. No, I had something in my eye, and uh, I was cutting onions. I remembered something sad. Now, there were sad songs playing. No, all right. So it was just awesome. So we're in a, in a series called Relationomics, Relationomics. And I want you to understand that the Bible is the most brilliant, I mean, I was going to say document, it's greater than literature, it's greater than literature. It is literally God in print. The Bible says, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. So, so this, is, this is God, you get to know God as you read the Word. Uh, so the title of my message today is The Seven Love Languages of God. If we're, if we're talking about relationomics, there was a, a wonderful book by Dr. Gary Chapman that we actually give people who get married, people who are wanting to get married, and people who are kind of having some conflict in their marriage. We give them this book 
called the five love languages, the five love languages. And, uh, and I was, you know, Jared and I were having some interactions in the 9 a.m. Uh, that they say that with the five love languages, the key is to, for you to try and discover and identify what your spouse's love language is. And my wife says, it's pretty easy. She says, all men are the same. I'm like, you can't say that. The book doesn't say that, Leanne. And she goes, well, let me just throw this out there. And I'm like, and I'm ready to prove her wrong. She goes, all men, it's, it's words of affirmation. And physical touch. And I'm like, how did you know that? She goes, she goes, every man is like, you know, touch me and tell me I'm awesome. And I'm like, I'm not arguing, okay. And uh, and but then I then I've discovered, I've, then I've discovered, like with with Leanne, it's all five. Is, is all five. It's not, it's not like it's one or it's two. And so words of affirmation or, you know, acts of service, receiving gifts, quality time, physical touch, it's, it's all five, but she doesn't know which one it is at that particular time. You have to guess. <laughs> you got to figure it out. And, and it might have been acts of service last week, but that was last week. How are you not up with the play? This week, it's quality time. This week, it's words of affirmation. And it so I've just decided all five. I'm just going to bring in all five and try them all out and see which one lands. And uh, let me just tell you this. Uh, men, the, the, the great challenge that every man has is we're destination oriented. We are destination oriented. Women are journey oriented. So we want to rush to the destination, but the woman wants to enjoy the journey. So we, we want to, you know, we want to say, okay, this is, this is, you know, it's words of affirmation or it's gifts or it's acts of kind. We, we want to get to the destination, but the woman loves the effort that it takes. I was telling the, the 9 a.m., I remember reading a story about a pastor many years ago driving home after a long day at work, and, and he sees on the other side of the street a vendor who was set up selling flowers, and when he saw the price, you know, $5, $10, and $15 for these big bouquets of, of flowers, these beautiful color, Piccadilly, oh, I don't know, now I'm going to, roses and other flowers. <laughs> and, he, and so he decides he's going to do a U-turn, and he picks up this beautiful big bouquet, and he drives home, walks in the front door, and his wife sees the flowers. He's running a little bit late. But she sees the flowers and all the lateness is forgotten, the big day is forgotten. She's like, oh, she rushes to get a vase. But him being a fairly typical male wants to brag to her about the hunt. Because the man is all about the hunt. And so he's telling her, oh, and babe, you're not going to believe how cheap they were. <laughs> and she's like, I beg your pardon? And he's like, oh, yeah, yeah, on the side of the road, oh. So much, and, and it was just there on the side. So I just did a U-turn, parked, bought these flowers. Look at this. If I got that from, you know, a department store or went down to the nursery, oh, it would have cost me four timers. Thinking he was impressing her. She got the vase, tipped all the water out, and threw the flowers back at him. Because it wasn't about the flowers. The thoughtfulness had to be matched by the effort. The she wants to know, am I worth the effort? All right, it's gone quiet. Okay, so I know that there are, there are five love languages, but today I want to show you that there are seven love languages that God has. 
seven love languages that God has. And I did get through the seven in the nine, but I feel, I feel a little energized. I feel like I'm going to do a better, better job this time. So I'm going to get through the, the seven. Now, let me just say this. Um, uh, they, they, they say that, that pressure doesn't produce weakness. It only exposes it. They say, if you really, I remember when I was in Bible college, they said, if you really want to see how much Christ is in a man, get a hammer and hit the, hit the, the college student on the toe and you'll see what comes out. <laughs> you, you'll see what's in there by, you know, what comes out under pressure. Jesus Christ is hanging on a cross and on the cross is fascinating. Over the four gospels, there are seven things that Jesus said when he was on the cross, seven statements that Jesus made when he was on the cross. Now, if you talk to anybody with a religious upbringing or, you know, has gone to church or is aware of Christianity, they will tell you the reason Jesus died on the cross was to atone for our sin. And you're 100% right that that's what he did, but that wasn't all he did. We know that 1, 1 John 3 verse 8 says, for this reason Jesus came into the earth to destroy the works of the devil. So Jesus also hung on the cross to destroy the works of the devil. But there's another facet. There's another element. The reason Jesus also died on the cross was to repair and restore a severed, broken relationship. Man was separated from God because of sin, and Jesus came to reconcile. He came to make atonement so that man and God, peace on earth, goodwill toward men, so that God and man can once more be reunited. The Bible says all the way through the New Testament, especially in the, the epistles by the Apostle Paul, that God has given us the ministry of reconciliation. The reason I want to start on this is because no matter where you are and no matter where you're at and no matter what you're facing, no matter what dysfunction was handed down to you, no matter what brokenness or broken pattern was modeled to you by parents who got divorced or lived in dysfunction or lived in chaos or whatever, I need you to understand that you've come into the right house to hear the right word so that you can have a right change. We've had so many men who've come to emerge separated, divorced, on the brink of divorce, and as they've come into Christ, as they've come into, they find that all of a sudden a ministry of reconciliation rather than division, but a ministry of reconciliation begins to evoke in them and they, they remarry the, the, the spouse that they divorced, the mother of their children, and restoration happens. So I need you to understand no matter where you are right now, strap yourself in because these seven keys are seven power keys. These are the seven love languages of God. So let's go to the first statement Jesus makes. It's in Luke 23 verse 34. Luke 23 verse 34. Jesus is hanging on the cross and the Bible says the Roman soldiers are at his feet uh, and they, they're gambling for his, 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 his tunic. And the Bible says, when Jesus looks down at the Roman soldiers, he says these words. He says, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And they divided his garments and cast lots. Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. The first love language of God and the first love language of any relationship is, number one, develop a great forgivery. Develop a great forgivery. In 1 Corinthians 13, verse 5, in the NIV, thank you, Dr. Ashley, uh, in the NIV, it says that love keeps no record of wrongs. Love keeps no record of wrongs. 
See that there at the end? It's not easily angered and it keeps no record of wrongs. Jesus is looking at the Roman soldiers. Number one, the Roman soldiers aren't asking for forgiveness. Number two, they're not deserving of forgiveness, but Jesus is forgiving them. He's forgiving them. The first key to any relationship is, is you've got to develop a good forgivery. And can I say, if you develop a good forgivery, the next thing you've got to develop is a good forgettery. The problem with me is I, I forget the things I need to remember, and I remember the things I need to forget. That's a default. So when, when you're in a relationship, and especially when you get married, I mean, look, if you're like, hey, no, pastor, I just want to be alone my whole life, which the Bible says isn't good, it's not good for man to be alone, uh, then, then don't listen to this. But if you don't want to be alone, if you want to have great relationships, great marriage, great fruitfulness, let me just tell you, the first thing you've got to understand is the price is you've got to develop a good forgivery. But what if they're not asking for forgiveness? Neither was I when Jesus died on the cross. Neither were the soldiers. Well, what if I'm, they're not deserving? Neither was I and neither. The Bible says, while we were yet sinners, Christ came and died for us. But can I just tell you, it goes one step deeper. Because if I say to Leanne, if Leanne and I, you know, have an issue and maybe, maybe she did something. And then I say, you know, look, I, baby, you're sorry. Okay, I forgive you. And then the next argument, I bring it up. Oh, well, yeah, this was just like last week when I had to forgive you for doing this. If I bring that up, did I really forgive her? Do you know the Bible says what God does with us is he forgives us our sins and then remembers them no more. He remembers them no more. Now, this is not because God is like Biden. It's not like he, you know, he can't remember where he is or... It's, it's, it's God, will, God willfully chooses. There's a principle at play that if I forgive, I therefore relinquish any right to remember it. If, 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 I, if I do something wrong, I forget my wife's birthday or I forget something, and I say, oh, baby, I am so sorry. Oh, my gosh, please forgive me. And then she brings it up again. She hasn't really forgiven me. She's still harboring. She's still holding. The Bible says that love keeps no record of wrongs. Love keeps no record of wrongs. In other words, God has, God has a sea. The Bible says that when, when God forgives us, he casts our sins into the sea of forgetfulness. And if you, if you turn up to that sea, Jared, if you turn up there with your fishing rod, there are signs, no fishing. No fishing. You're not allowed to cast your hook into the sea of forgetfulness and bring up, oh, I remember that. That was, that was 2021. I remember that transgression. I'm going to put this one in my basket. What else can I dig up from the past? You're not allowed to go fishing. So when you forgive you forget. Otherwise, have you really forgiven? Because sometimes we say, all right, I forgive you, but if you have to put a but at the end of forgiveness, you haven't forgiven. You haven't forgiven. Somebody has to go first. The Roman soldiers weren't going to go first. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Did you know before you asked him to forgive you, he already forgave you? Did you know that? So somebody has to go first. In a relationship, I can't tell you because Leanne is strong. I know she's cute. I know she's pretty. I know she's sweet. But she is strong. 
You don't believe me. Trust me. Trust me. The girl kicked the fins out of my surfboard. My surfboard has three fins. One fin kicked out is bad enough. But she decided she's going to, I think that's my phone. Sorry about that. Um, I think I can put it on silent. Um, one, one fin is bad enough, um, but she kicked out all three. She's feisty. But I found that we've come, often come to this and then somebody has to, I'm not forgiving you, you don't, somebody's got to go first. And, and sadly, she has many times led. And I'm like, oh, gosh darn it, I'm going to be the first to lead. Now, let me just speak a little bit about forgiveness as a, as a little caveat. When you forgive somebody, if you forgive an abuser, if you give, forgive someone who took advantage or defrauded you, forgiving them does not mean restoring trust to them. Trust has two sides. If you think of trust as a coin, trust has two sides. This side is trust is given. This side is trust is earned. I find that I give trust. We trust leaders. We trust people in positions of authority. Now that they are entrusted with authority, they need to earn that trust. Does that make sense? So trust is given, but it's also meant to be earned. So if somebody stole money from you, they defrauded you, they abused you, they let you down, you forgive them. Don't live with unforgiveness. Don't live with bitterness. But understand, they have, by their actions, just moved out of an inner circle of trust. It doesn't mean that you don't forgive them. You've forgiven them. But trust and forgiveness are two different, two different things. God wants you to walk in wisdom. There's a lot of people that think, oh, my gosh, I forgave, and so I restored. No, 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 no. God forgave us of our sin, but Adam and Eve were driven out of the garden. They lost position. They, they had to go back. Through Jesus, things are reconciled, and we'll be back in God's paradise. But in, in the meantime, God had to say, I can't trust you with this. I forgive you, but your actions, you're not ready to handle that. This is a privilege. So, so your heart, the Bible says, above all else, guard your heart. Am I making sense? Above all else, guard your heart. If somebody abused or somebody neglected or somebody stole or defrauded, you forgive them, but you need to understand you've got to just put them out of your inner garden. Does it make sense? All right. Okay, number two, number two. Second thing Jesus said on the cross, this is incredible. Luke 23, 42, Jesus is hanging on a cross. He's between two thieves. One of the thieves says, if you are the son of God, save yourself and save us. And the thief on the other side rebukes him and says, man, what's wrong with you, you jackwagon? We're here because of our sin. This guy's done nothing wrong. And then he turns to Jesus and he says, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Remember me when you come into your kingdom. And then Jesus turns to him and says, Assuredly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. The second love language of God is to bless gratuitously always. What does gratuitously mean? It means without merit, over and abundant, exuberant. If you go into marriage to, for what you can get, if you have a contract and make your little checklist, well, I was expecting, and I, how come I haven't? And when was the last time? And I, if you go in there with your, your 
going in to try to get, I'm telling you, you're going to have the most miserable life. But if you go in understanding that you are blessed to be a blessing, you are blessed to be a blessing. The thief on the cross can do nothing for Jesus. He can't do anything. He, he can't do anything to earn heaven. He's hanging on a cross. It's a little late. He can't give an offering because he can't reach into his pocket. He can't do a mission trip. He can't get baptized. He's, it's toast. And yet he asks, he appeals to Jesus' mercy. Do you know Jesus is hanging on the cross to pay for his heaven? Jesus is paying for it to give him something he can't. In marriage, I discovered in the early years, Leanne and I would fight all the time on who had the most sleep, who had the least sleep, who, had, who was doing the most, you know, who was carrying the most, who was the most stressed, who was the most, and we're always fighting. Well, you, well, you, oh, well yeah, and we're always, and no one was happy. We're always at this. And then finally, I realized I've got I gotta, I gotta to start being like God. I've got to start, because that's what godly means, godlike. I'm going to start learning God's love languages. That my job is to bless. Well, hang on, hang on. There's no guarantee. If you just bless her, how do you know? And that's what the devil whispered. How do you know she's going to bless you back? She, she might just be like this big sponge, this big selfish sponge and just absorb. But I actually found that the more that I loved her and the more that I blessed her, that did the exact opposite. She's like, oh my gosh, well, you know, I don't need to be selfish because everything I need, you're anticipating and providing. What do you need? How can I bless you? And now all of a sudden marriage goes from bless to bliss. It's, it's, it's a very, very similar word. It's almost an identical word. If you want bliss, learn to bless. Bliss and bless, you know, come from the same root. And, and, and I remember when we first got married, like we'd meet other people and their, their marriage was, you know, struggling and, and, uh, and they, they always had these contracts and, and a contract is, is almost like a 50-50 partnership. In a contract, you know, you enter into a contract and, and I'm going to provide these services and in exchange, I expect these to come back and that's what the contract is. This party says we're going to do this and then you can expect that. And then this party says, okay, well then, if we expect that, then we're going to do this. And it's a partnership. And if one party, you know, then the contract is violated, the contract can be broken, you can sue and all that kind of stuff. That's how most people apply marriage. And so in the early years, Leanne and I had this 50-50. That, you know, I'll bring my 50% and then she brings her 50% and that's where we meet in the middle. And 50 and 50 makes 100. And we were fighting all the time because I felt like I was doing 51 and she was doing 49. And then God just said to me, you, 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 marriage isn't a contract, it's a covenant. He says, am I faithful to you only when you're faithful to me? I'm like, no, no. You've been faithful to me even when I've let you down. He says, all right, he goes, you know, do, am I good to you only when you're good to me? I'm like, no, God, you're, you're, you're good all the time and all the time you're good. He says, that's because I'm a covenant God. Your behavior and your performance is irrelevant. I'm a covenant-making God because I'm a covenant-keeping God. He says, the key to a marriage, Jürgen, is it's a covenant. You go in 100. And he says, if you go in 100 and Leanne goes in 100, instead of meeting here, it's like this. There's an overlap. So on her worst day, if she's a 10, doesn't matter. You got it. I got this, babe. I'm operating at 100. 
But on your worst day, when you're a 10, she's in at 100. You're always in the overlap. You're always in the overflow. So give or bless gratuitously. Number three. Is this all right? Is this helping anybody? Oh, my God. How, how is the time, dear goodness gracious? All right. Oh, I thought I was doing better. All right, John, John 19. John 19, 26 to 27. Jesus is hanging on a cross. This is, this is, this is mind-blowing. This is crazy. He's hanging on a cross to reconcile the world back to himself, back to God. He's dealing with sin. He's atoning for our sin. He's going to destroy the works of the devil. All of this is taking place. Like he, he was sweating drops of blood. He's just been betrayed by Judas. He's hanging on a cross. And while he's hanging on the cross, there is, is his mama, Mary. And over here is, is the beloved, John the Beloved, one of his disciples. And while he's hanging on the cross, he says, woman, behold your son. He says, son, behold your mother. And the Bible says, and from that moment forward, uh, that disciple took her into his home. What did that mean? It means that Jesus being the firstborn, Jesus being the eldest, his mother was his responsibility. We don't know where. The Bible doesn't record exactly where. I believe it was when the, his mother and brothers came and they said, Lord, your mother and brothers are outside. And Jesus said, who is my mother? Who are my brothers? He who does the will of God is my, my mother and is my brothers. I, I believe it was, again, an incredibly difficult decision that Jesus had to make because if you look in John, the animosity that his brothers had towards Jesus was, was, was fairly palpable and it's because Joseph had died. His daddy, Joseph, had died. For Jesus, going to full-time ministry was the most inconvenient time. Joseph had just died, and he, as the firstborn son, was meant to take care of mama. And so the disciples felt, or the brothers, excuse me, felt like he was abdicating, seeking, you know, his own. But, but it was like, so anyway, so now Jesus is hanging on the cross. He's dying for the sins of the world, but he's still taking responsibility. And he says, you know, mother, your son, son, your mother. And John knew what it meant. He means I'm, I'm the one entrusted to take care of Mary, Jesus's mother. I'm going to be the one that provides and looks after and makes sure. Because in, in Israel, they, don't, they didn't have like social security, you know, or old folks homes. The family takes care of the parents. You have children so they can take care of you when you can no longer take care of yourself just like we take care of, uh, of our babies when they're little as our babies grow up and we're old they are now in a position where they can reciprocate and so Jesus is hanging on the cross thinking of others he's taking responsibility you would think if anybody could be given a pass it would be Jesus but, but he's hanging on the cross and he takes responsibility. In personal pain, he doesn't stop being responsible. Well, you don't understand. I was under pressure. I was stressed. I was, Jesus was under a little bit of pressure. He was under a little bit of distress. He was in a little bit of pain. Don't let pain, don't let stop you from doing what is right. He's on the cross and the right thing, the responsible thing. If you can keep providing and keep leading and keep serving and keep honoring and keep blessing your spouse in every single season, it was the most inconvenient time. But Jesus didn't let the crucifixion, he didn't let dying on the cross stop him and cause him to negate his responsibility. He looked after his mother, always take responsibility. You know what Adam and Eve did? They deflected responsibility. You know, God, God says to Adam, well, why are you hiding, covering yourself in fig leaves? He goes, oh, because oh, oh, 
oh, we're naked. He goes, you were naked before. What changed? Have you eaten from the tree? The woman you gave me, she. And then he looks at the woman. Is that true? And she's like, the serpent. No one's taking responsibility. Everyone's walking in blame-itis. <laughs> Blaming is the abdication of responsibility. Accept responsibility. Here's, here's one of the saddest confessions in my life. Many times Leanne and I have had arguments, and I am convinced, Michael, I am right. And I'm not, no, no, oh, no, 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 uh, uh. And then she will go, you know what? I want to apologize. I was wrong. It's my fault. And I'm like, you're done. Well, actually, well, now that I look at it, <laughs> shoot, I actually did contribute. And if I really look at it, I probably contributed more than my 50%. But, uh, oh, shoot. And then I realized, wow, you were bigger than me. You came and accepted responsibility for something that the key, you know, what, what, was, what, what were the, the seven sins that Jesus committed that he died on the cross for? None. Yeah. He didn't, he, he took responsibility for my sin. There were my sins that put him on the cross. And yet he took responsibility. In a marriage, take responsibility. You know, the most powerful, powerful relationship is when you say sorry and it wasn't even your fault. When you say sorry, sorry. And, and this is what, what Leanne and I do all the time. We say, you know what, honey, I, if, if, if I have, then I want you to know I'm sorry. This is not what I want. It's unbelievable how it flips the table. You're like, well, shoot, actually, I'm behaving like a doofus. Wow. I, no, I'm sorry. And then everything goes back up from there. Number four. Number four. Somebody gave me a few more minutes. Thank you. <laughs> Number four, Matthew 27, 46. This is a ripper. Matthew 27, 46. Jesus is hanging on the cross. And the Bible says from the sixth hour to the ninth hour, darkness fell upon the whole land. What was happening was there wasn't an eclipse. God was literally taking the sins of the world and placing it upon Jesus. Jesus was absorbing the sins of the world over a three-hour period. All the sin of man was placed upon Jesus. Jesus was crucified on the cross, but the Bible says that Pilate marveled that Jesus was dead already because sometimes people would hang on a cross four or five days. They'd be hanging on the cross. So Pilate was like, wow, he, 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 he's dead already? Because it wasn't that Jesus was a weakling. Jesus was fit. Christian Virilli is fit, but he uses power tools. Jesus didn't have power tools back then. There was no Ryobi. Ryobi hadn't even been born yet. If he had to saw a piece of wood, he had to saw it by hand. If he finished somebody's table, he had to carry it to their house. He, he repaired stuff, you know, lifting beams and everything. He, he, he was quite fit. It wasn't the crucifixion that, that, that killed Jesus. What killed Jesus was Jesus on the cross 
absorbed the judgment and the wrath of God on our sin upon himself. The Bible doesn't say that he just took our sin. The Bible says that he became sin. He literally became sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. It was the judgment of God on the sins of the world that, that, that ultimately took, took Jesus out on the cross. And while he's hanging on the cross and becoming sin for the first time in 33 years of his life, he feels something he's never felt before. He felt God disconnect from him. God is so holy, he cannot look upon sin. And when Jesus became sin, God had to disconnect himself so that his complete anger, wrath, and judgment could land on Jesus. And in that moment, he cries out and he says, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, my God, my God. Why have you forsaken me? The next verse doesn't say, and then Jesus came down from the cross and saved himself. Then Jesus stayed on the cross. He stayed on the cross even though he was abandoned, even though he felt disconnected, even though darkness had enveloped the land. Stay the course. Stay the course. I remember on my wedding day, my mother-in-law comes up to me and she says, Jürgen, I've got one piece of advice for you. And I'm thinking, beautiful, because you've had Leanne for 17 and a half years. So give me, I'm ready. I've got my pen, I'm ready. And she says, throw out the parachute. Um, I don't have a parachute. She goes, yes, you do, the D word. I'm like, the D word, of course, the D word. The D the D, it's like, what D word? She goes, divorce. I'm like, divorce. She goes, yes. She goes, throw it out. No parachute. 31 and a half years of marriage. Had it have been there, the temptation to kind of bail ship, to kind of jump out in mid-flight. I'm out of here. I threw it out. Come hell or high water. That's why we make a covenant. For richer, for poorer. For better, for worse. In sickness and in health. Throw out the D word. Jesus is hanging on a cross, nails through his wrist, vicious beating. Darkness covers the land. He becomes sin. He feels God abandon him. And he stays the course. Stay the course through thick and thin. A few years ago, we went up to Napa Valley. People always tell me, my, my, my preacher friends, especially from the South, I say, Pastor, you shouldn't preach on, like, in fact, you go to Napa Valley because it's going to condone people get drunk. <laughs> if you get drunk because I went to Napa, it's not because I went to Napa. It's, there's just some unresolved issues still in your own heart. Okay, It's got nothing to do with where I go. So, and, and Jesus taught on wine. He, his first miracle is he turned water into wine. He says that the kingdom of heaven is like a man who owns a vineyard. And then the last thing that Jesus said is, this cup is the cup of the new covenant in my blood. And he took the wine. So you're going to have a problem. Okay, so if you're looking for a reason, it's, not, it, it's already there in the Bible. So anyway, so, so we, go, we go to Napa. Because, and we have this guy in our church who's been going to Napa for over 40 years. And he gets us into these three vineyards that aren't even on the map. I've never even heard of them. And I'm like, ah, I don't know if I want to go there because I've never heard of them. So how can the wine be any good? He's like, trust me. And sure enough, we get there. The wine was exquisite. The first place that we go to is uh, a place that is owned by the, the guy. He used to be like a, a, a really high up guy in um, Apple Macintosh. And he invented the floppy disk. 
and he's worth a couple of billion dollars. And so he has, you know, all these properties. And this one property, he has a mountain. So we're walking towards the mountain. I'm like, oh, we're going to go and sit on top of the mountain and open a bottle of wine. They said, oh, no, no, come around this side. We're going to go into the mountain. He literally built his wine cellar and this, this wine facility inside the mountain. It was like a James Bond scene. Like we walk in, there's all these lights and everything. And then there's this glass wall, glass wall with doors and then this beautiful table. And we're sitting there and there's charcuterie and cheese. And, and, and then they bring, and then the first wine he brings out is a Chardonnay. And the Chardonnay is named Barbara. And I'm like, that's an odd name for, is he from Santa Barbara? And he says, oh, no, no, that's his wife's name. He's been married 61 years. And so he named the, the Chardonnay after his wife. Well, then we go to another one, you know, after that. And the guy named the Pinot after his wife. And they'd been married like, I think it was like 50, 57 or 58 years. And then we go to this third one in, in the afternoon. And it, it was just exquisite. The wine was probably the best out of, out of all three places. And the winemaker the sommelier was telling us that, that today is a treat because he had not yet tasted the 213. And I'm like, but it's 2018. Why the heck have you not tasted the 213? You guys might want to, you know, speed things up a little bit. And five years behind. Then he starts telling us that it takes five years to make a good wine. And he says, but the 2013 is going to be unbelievable. He goes, and today, the first time I taste it is going to be with you. And he says, let me tell you about 2013. He says, in 2013, we had the severest drought in California. Not only that, but the winter was so brutal, was so cold, that we had the most severest frost. He said, we lost uh, almost two-thirds of our grapes because the only grapes that could survive the, the cold of the morning winter frost were the grapes who could thicken their skin to survive. All the grapes that had thin skin fell off and died. He said, so we lost, we had about one third of the grapes that, that made it. But because the thin was, because the skin was thicker, it, it just, it, it accelerated the flavor. And then he says, to double whammy it, they had the severest drought. There was no water. We had hardly any rainfall. So those poor roots had to dig down deeper, putting incredible stress and pressure on the wine. He says, this 2013, the winemaker who's been married 47 years has dedicated it to his wife. So then Pastor Becky Heinrichs, who's on the trip with us, looks at me and I love her because she thinks I know everything. She's like, Pastor, it's incredible. What is it about these, these vineyard owners that they stay married to one woman their whole life? And I wanted to say to her, oh, how would I know? But I'm kind of flattered by the fact that she thinks I would know. And then I'm like, Holy Spirit, I've got to kind of burst to a bubble. I really don't know. And he goes, yes, you do. And he tells me. I'm like, that is unbelievable. And Becky goes, Pastor, why do you think that is? I said, oh, it's real simple, Becky. <laughs> I said, they all stay married because we're drinking the 2013. She says, it's unbelievable. It's unbelievable. I said, it's unbelievable. I said, it's a 2013, even though it's 2018. In 2013, the severest frost, in 2013, the severest drought came. Most people say, how come you got divorced? How come you're separated? How come you left your spouse? How come you, well, you don't understand how frosty things have become. You don't understand. I was in a drought and my needs weren't getting met, so I'm out of here. But to a winemaker, to a vineyard owner, he knows that there are seasons and every season produces something and he's thinking 
I just had the frostiest year. I just had a year of the most intense drought where there was no water, no rain from heaven, where the heavens withheld. If I divorce, why would I divorce her and in five years' time she marries somebody else and he gets to drink the best wine ever that was produced for so a winemaker knows, I ain't divorcing her. I'm smart. I know that this drought and I know that this frost is going to produce a vintage in five years. I'm going to reap something that is extraordinary. If you can stay the course, stay the course. If I look back on, on, on our 31 and a half years of marriage, I would say that the, the frost years and the drought years have produced some of the greatest vintage and the sweet wine. Do you know the Bible talks about love in the context of wine? Did you know that? The Bible says in the book of Proverbs, always be enraptured with the wine of your wife or your spouse's love. The word enraptured is also translated intoxicated. If you're going to be drunk on something, be drunk on the love from your spouse. How does that produce? It's produced in the droughts. It's produced in, nobody's preaching this, but I'm telling you the truth. Jesus is on the cross in the dark, and he stays on the cross. He stays the course. Number five. I promise I'm going to, I'll race through these last two. Number five. This is, this is mind-blowing. John 19, 28. This is incredible. This is like, this wrecks me. So after this, Jesus, knowing all things were accomplished, that the scripture might be fulfilled, Jesus said, I thirst. Are you kidding me? He said, what? Jesus is hanging on the cross. He's taken a beating. He's, he's been whipped beyond human recognition. Isaiah, Isaiah in a vision sees Jesus hanging on the cross and the Bible says his, his visage is so marred beyond human likeness. From a distance, Jesus was so bloodied and beaten up with the beating from the, the centurions and the Romans, the crown of thorns in his head, and then they whipped him till there was no flesh left on his back. Uh, Psalm 22 says he could count his ribs because they were, the, the flesh was so torn. He could see his ribs as he's hanging on the cross. The, Isaiah says that he is, he, he, from a distance, he looks like, an, it looks like there's an animal hanging on the cross. He doesn't even look human as he's hanging on the cross. And as he's suffering for the sins of the world, as he is giving himself to die for our sin, he says, I thirst. I thirst. Thirst. He admits weakness. He admits vulnerability. He admits a need. The Bible said somebody ran quickly and, and put some wine vinegar on a sponge and gave it to him. This is Jesus. This is God who can walk on water who can speak to the wind and the waves and immediately they obey him, who can call for a man who's been dead, buried in a tomb for four days. Lazarus come forward, they roll away the stone and the dead man comes out. This is a God with whom all things are possible. And yet, at his most 
triumphant moment as he's dying for the sins of mankind on the cross, he invites us into his world. He opens the door and says, I have a need. I'm thirsty. Marriage is about vulnerability. If you go into marriage trying to hold it all together and putting up your walls and the, the thing that blows me away about my, my beautiful Leanne is she will tell me that she loves me. And when she tells me that she loves me, I still struggle. I would tell you I'm a man of faith, but I'm like, how, how can you love me? The church, I can understand if they love me, they see me at my best. They see me polished. They see me under a gift. They see me in my anointing. Yeah, but you've seen the worst of me. You've seen me when I've lost my temper. You've seen me when I've been at my low point. You've seen me when I haven't had faith. You've seen me in my worst of my, you've seen everything. The word intimacy is into me see. Into me see. Pornography is the greatest lie, the greatest counterfeit from the devil. Because he says, look at this intimacy. They're doing intimate acts, but there's no into me see. These people don't care for one another. They don't love one another. Real love, real intimacy comes from when someone can into you see beyond your veil, beyond your performance, beyond your externals, the power of Leanne saying to me, I love you, when she sees all my flaws, all my weaknesses, all of that begins the moment you realize God sees you, not as you perform, not with your religious mask. He sees you at your highest and He sees you at your lowest. He sees you at your best and He sees you at your worst. And even in your worst, He still says, I love you you're mine and I died on the cross Jesus says I thirst vulnerability vulnerability is the key to intimacy can you communicate with your spouse I feel not heard I'm thirsty for your affection life has been lived at such a pace we're so busy but I miss you I need this from you. Jesus, there was no guarantee that anybody would do anything. But he said, I'm still going to put myself out there. I thirst. The greatest delight in marriage is when I say, baby, I thirst. And she says, let me go and get some wine vinegar on us. When she meets that need. All right, number six. Number six. Does, does, does that land? Because you're very, very quiet. I'm not sure if I... Right, number six. The last two, real quick. 19, John 19.30. After he drank the wine vinegar, Jesus said, It is finished. It is finished. Follow through to completion. The Bible says, He who began a good work will be faithful to complete it. Follow through to completion. Follow through, follow through, follow through. Jesus said, it is. He hung there till the completion. I made vows on my wedding day. Can I tell you how easy it was to make vows? Vows are easy. Making the vows are easy. Oh, I love you. 
you're the most beautiful, the most awesome, and I don't want anyone else in the whole world forsaking all others, forsaking all other. Sorry, forsaking all others. We, we make the vows on the wedding day. It's easy to forget in the dark what we promised in the light. It's easy in the valley to turn our back what we promised on the mountain. Jesus said, it is finished. He, he saw the thing through. Make the commitment, I'm finishing. I found it easy to make the vows. Now God says, great, can you live the vows? If you make your goal to live the vows, not, well, she's not, my spouse isn't. No, 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 no. I made the vows. I've got nails through my wrists. This is difficult, but I'm going to stay in there. I'm going to follow through to completion. And the last one, the last one. Jesus says, into your hands I commit my spirit. And then he breathes his last. Number seven is give God the final word. Into your hands I commit my spirit. Into your hands I commit my spirit. In other words, Jesus is saying, let your word be true. Not how I feel, not how my emotions are, your word. If you can live above feeling, if you can live above, your emotions and your feelings will fluctuate. They'll fluctuate. I can't tell you how many stupid feelings, stupid emotions, stupid thoughts I've had in 31 years of marriage. But I found that if I bring everything to the Word of God, remember, remember the first temptation? Jesus has finished fasting. He's been fasting for 40 days and he was hungry. And the devil comes to him and says, hey, if you're the Son of God, turn these stones into bread. In other words, use the anointing, use the gifts on your life to serve and fulfill your own appetites first. Which is like, devil, you sneaky, crafty little thing. It is written, man doesn't live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. If you will live above feelings and above emotions, if you will live in the place where you give God the final say, where you give God, you know, Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, sweating drops of blood. Father, if it's possible for this cup to part, nevertheless, not my will, thy will be done. If you can live giving God's word, living God's word first, living God's word. I had a, a Marine many, many years ago, you know, come to me and say, hey, pastor, you know, what does the Bible say about, you know, uh, a, a, a wife honoring her husband? I said, well, you know, the Bible says, and, you know, and so he's, and, and I knew he knew the scriptures, but he was fishing for a reason. And then he started to tell me how his wife had, had moved out. And I realized she'd moved out because he was an arrogant, unfaithful jack wagon. And now he's trying to get her back, but he's lost authority with her. So he's trying to now borrow my authority as the pastor and for me to go around with the word of God and tell her, you need to go back to, I'm like, I ain't doing it. I ain't doing it. You lost your, your, your authority and the only way you can get it back is you got to repent. You got you to gotta repent. When you violated God's word, you lost the authority that God's word affords you. You gave into feelings and emotions, and that did damage to this relationship. She's now protecting herself from you because she can't trust you. You want to tell her that she can trust you. You repent, and you go to God first, whose word you violated, and then you let her, you begin to model 
that she can see the Word of God living in your life and then slowly she'll open up and trust. Come on, let's stand to our feet. I'm over time. Seven love languages of God. I'm telling you, just one of those will change everything. If you caught two of those, get ready, get ready, get ready. If you got three of those, shut the gate. Four stands at least a four. I know that. He's going to have the greatest year of your life. Just lift your hands to heaven. Lift your hands to heaven. Just, just allow the Holy Spirit in this moment. When you lift your hands, it's like the, the boughs, the branches of a tree lifted up. Sometimes you'll see the wind blowing through the, 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 the trees and the, the leaves shake and they almost make a sound. Right now, the wind of the Holy Spirit is moving through this place. Just like the leaves respond to the breath of God, the wind. In the same way, why don't you just allow some of those thoughts, some of those words, some of those love languages of God to take root. Father, we thank you, Lord God, that everything is shifting in East County. Everything is shifting over marriages, over families. We declare that people are going to look back in the future Social scientists are going to say something shifted right around the year 2018. What was it? Oh, my gosh, there was a church. They began to preach the Bible without the, the, the religious nonsense. They began to empower people. Marriages changed. Trajectories changed. Restoration, reconciliation, health, wholeness. Everything began to change. Drug addiction, alcohol addiction, crime, murder. Everything plummeted as health escalated because they begin to live by the word. Jesus says, whoever hears these sayings and does them, whoever hears these sayings of mine and does them, well, I will liken him to a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain comes down, the flood comes up, the wind blows, hurricane force, but the house stand because it was founded on the rock because they applied my word. Father, bless these beautiful people. If your life's not right with Christ today, get your life right with Christ. How do I do that? You simply ask him, to come into your heart and forgive you of your sin. You thank Him for dying on the cross in your place. If you do that today, we'd love to give you a Bible and a following Jesus book. If you need any ministry today, if you're struggling, if you're like, man, I feel like I'm drowning. I feel like I'm in a pit. I feel like my marriage is so far gone and we're constantly fighting. We're constantly battling. I'm here, but my spouse isn't here. How do I get them to hear this message? Well, we put them, put them out every week for free. You can listen to them at any time. But if you need prayer, come and let somebody pray with you. Come and let somebody. We've got a great ministry team. They'd love to pray with you. But Heavenly Father, you see these beautiful people. And I pray for your hand upon them. And pray for your blessing. We bind the devil of every, of every relationship. I break the spirit right now that tries to empower selfishness. That tries to, tries to cause division. That brings division into a house. We know that Jesus taught that the house divided cannot stand. We break the spirit of division. The spirit of, of he said, she said. The spirit of remem remembering our sins. Of keeping records of wrongs. Of, of, of turning covenants into contracts. Of my needs. And we break that spirit. Father, we thank you for what we heard today. We want to be more like you, Jesus. We want to be like you. The Bible says, while we were yet sinners, Jesus died and he has now reconciled us. You and I have everlasting life because of what Jesus did. 
Father, I thank you for breakthrough. Thank you for freedom. Thank you for blessing. In Jesus' mighty name, everybody said, amen. Wow, what an amazing word. I hope you enjoyed that as much as I did. Hey, listen, for more information about our church, go to www.awakenchurch.com or subscribe to our YouTube channel if you haven't already and download our app. It is amazing. It is chock full of incredible messages, information about upcoming events, and you can even support our ministry if you feel so inclined. We loved having you with us today. We look forward to seeing you again. God bless you. Live a life that is transformative. Bye for now.